0: This episode of The Bell Tell Husband produced
1: by our sister podcast, The Indo Daily. Shane is a, a son
0: who's very, very talented, loved very much by us, extremely trustworthy, and of course, of whom we're very proud. Won't another one. The life and times of Pogue's icon Shane McGowan. Poet, punk, performer extraordinaire, the great Shane McGowan has left us.
1: I've been
0: loving you a long time. He leaves behind an incredible body of work. From songs like Rainy Night in Soho to "Fairy Tale of New York and iconic albums such as Rum, Sodomy and The Lash and If I Should Fall from Grace with God. Grace with God no from a poetry-fuelled middle-class upbringing to the chaotic UK punk scene. Shane McGowan was an innovator who defined his own rulebook before tearing it apart. I truly believe that a hundred years from now, that Shane's music is going to be remembered and sung. It's just deep in the nature of it. His was an infamously hedonistic life, one that won critical acclaim and celebrity admirers, but also one that came at a cost to his health and well-being. It's a very dangerous drug, heroin. Yeah. And, like, you should think very carefully before you take
1: it, yeah? I kissed my girl
0: I'm Fianon Sheehan, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Irish independent journalist John Marr to assess the life and legacy of the dearly departed Shane McGowan. Dirty old town Dirty old town John Marr, appropriately enough, we are two Tipperary men gathering to remember one of our own uh, here. Shane McGowan very much claimed by by Tipperary. So can you tell me about his his upbringing and, and, and where he was from and where he was reared?
1: Yeah, he was from Kent uh, and kind of had a nomadic existence in the home counties in the south of England but a lot of his childhood was spent in Tipperary. His mother was from a place called Kearney which is outside Nina and his father's from Dublin but Tipperary was somewhere that meant a lot to him and actually in later years he lived in the county for, for quite a while. His mother lived there. She actually died in a road accident in Tipperary in 2017. So... Tipperary was somewhere that was important to his story, partly because it's where he started to play music. It's where he would be involved in sing-alongs, even as a kid. It's probably where he had his first taste of Guinness, reportedly at the age of five. So the premier county is a lot to answer yeah, for. Yeah,
0: associated with the the village of Puckon near near the the, the shores of Loch Derg, and I say he he went to school. There. His mother is very much the one who influences him in terms of his, his love of music. I mean, he gets a bit of it from you. You were a writer, and Theresa was big into the music, so yeah. we can see the, the, the two sides
1: of, of both of you coming together in Shane. I think it comes from up there somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 but can Maybe I? to keep in with the fellow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was uh, steeped in Irish culture. You know, she'd been involved in Fesh Kjolls, both his parents had an obsession with music. Like so many people that were resident in Britain in the 1950s and 60s, they were clinging to the home country and music and dancing were expressions of that. And, and it was something that seems to have been important to Shane from an early age.
0: So about the age of six, they moved back over
1: to England, and he kind of has a, a very middle-class upbringing, doesn't he, and, and education too? Oh, oh, very much so. He, he attended a, a school called Holmwood House in Kent. It's a beautiful place. I mean, a, a, a gorgeous building designed by Decimus Burton, who's responsible for some of the lovely buildings in the Phoenix Park, and... He was a prodigious reader. He was reading Joyce at 11, apparently, and he won a scholarship to the very, very prestigious Westminster School. At the moment, day fees for that place are around £35,000 if you want to be a boarder. You're talking about £50,000 a year. So, you know, this is serious stuff and some significant members of the British public attended this school. So Shane was super bright, but... You know, he. <laughs> it won't surprise anybody to learn that he was a troublemaker in school. This is an intelligent,
0: well-read, cultured young young man, but he gets into spots of butter. He does. He
1: does. Let's also say he's curious. He's curious about the world of of drugs and drink and illicit things, and he's caught with quite a large quantity of drugs by the the various people of this school, Westminster School, and he is expelled. And, and there's, a, there's a sense that, you know, he never quite recovers from that in terms of the, the career path maybe that many of his classmates would go to, you know. So there was no membership of the Tory party, no kind of CEO ship of British Steel or something like that. I mean, it's it's a life of deviance and creativity and music, which is always there in the background, is pulling him forward.
0: And of course, the, the musical trend, if we if, if you can call it that, the genre of of the era that he's drawn to is, is very much punk and he he comes to public prominence he because does. of the clash first
1: yeah he attends a clash gig in 1976 i mean 1976 is an extraordinarily exciting year to be a music fan in britain because you've got this embryonic genre and amazing bands like the clash coming forward there's a picture of him that appears with uh, a bloodied ear that, that he, basically his earlobe was severed during the, the riotous um, atmosphere of the gig. And, uh, but, but like a lot of people, and Boy George, who also has a temporary connection, comes to prominence in that time. Punk is, is, is like, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a, a catalyst for, for creativity. And I think at that concert... The young Shane McGowan is thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to be on stage. I want to be making music that is creating huge havoc, huge excitement. And he gets it a little bit after the punk period, but he does just that. Punk was the, that, the great
0: expression of rebellion, but yet at the same time, he's a great creativity and culture uh, uh, around that. And then you, you effectively see... Shane McGowan's career going in a particular path where these two great musical influences on him, Irish trad music and punk, merged together.
1: They do, they do in a, in a really thrilling way. I mean, people like Kevin Rowland of Dexy's Midnight Runners have been doing a little bit of that already. Again, he's somebody of an Irish background, Mayo in his case, and uh, and and McGowan was very inspired by by Dexy's in in their early years and particularly like in 1982 the year that Pogues form or Pogue Mahone as they were initially called Dexies have a huge hit with Come on Eileen it's number 1 for week after week after week and that is fusing this kind of celtic rock punk kind of attitude and uh, and, and and that's something really pivotal for, for Shane um, so he's taking the, the 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 excitement of punk the sort of complexities of the post-punk genre that comes after that and all the traditional music that he grew up with and felt real kinship with and makes something very special bad life, bad life. His first foray
0: into a band is punk.
1: Yeah, the year after he goes to that Clash gig in 1977, he forms the wonderfully titled The Nipple Erectors and uh, and gets a flavour of what it's like to be on stage uh, during the heyday of punk. The Pogues
0: effectively create this modern expression of Irish music traditional instruments modern instruments all coming together
1: but at the same time this rebellious streak they they rub some people up the wrong way. Oh absolutely I mean even the name I mean when the BBC discovered that Pogue Mahone means A certain thing, Kiss My You-Know-What, there's a a, a sense of outrage. I mean, of course, this is an institution that, uh, you know, five years previously had banned the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks album, because people were upset by that title. But Kid Jensen, the very popular DJ at the time, starts to abbreviate the, the band name to The Pogues, and it stuck and it kind of worked quite well for them. And another uh, significant musical figure of Irish extraction comes into the Pogue story around now. It's the former Declan McManus, known to most people as Elvis Costello. He's had a great run himself in the late 70s, early 80s, and he produces Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, 1985, a masterpiece from the Pogues. I mean, this is the album. When people say to me, oh, Shane McGowan, the Pogues, you know, it's just pub music, isn't it? I say, hang on a second, like clean out your ears and listen to this album and listen to a song like A Rainy Night in Soho and come back and tell me that they're a pub band. I mean, there is such musical invention here. It's one of the great albums released by an Irish act in music history. On
0: a rainy night in Soho And you had a, a great mix of, of genres within that. You're going from, obviously, the, the punk influence, the Irish influence, and lovely love songs uh, as, as well
1: in there. Did it get critical acclaim? It did. Yeah, it did very much at the time. I mean, there's a... And and, and even more so as the years have gone by. I mean, don't forget as well, this emerges at a period where you've bands like Duran Duran, you've escapist pop, you've kind of the new romantic thing is still kind of clinging on to a degree. You've synth pop. And then it's something for a lot of people that's completely out of left field. So certainly there was a, a sense that this is completely different. But I think as the years have gone by, we see... The genius of McGowan there, like lyrically, uh, like he he really he he wrote as an outsider. Um, so much of it is inspired by his drinking. Let's be honest here; these songs would not have become as extraordinary as they are if he was a sober chap. Do you know? Alcohol fuels this album and some of the ver- best Pogues work, and we just have to accept that it was also completely destructive to the band and to Shane himself. But creatively, it's a bit like the Stones in the 70s. Take away the drugs and you've got a very different Rolling Stones. He says he's drinking in Ireland is regarded as a sissy drinking now.
0: Yeah, but I mean half the whole bloody country drinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world. Everybody knows that. Is it fair to say... The success peaked in the
1: late 1980s? I think so. He had a difficult relationship with Elvis Costello. Um, in 1988, he worked on an album called If I Should Fall From Grace With God, another wonderful album.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This time... It's Steve Lillywhite who's in the production uh, chair, and Steve Lillywhite, of course, has worked wonders with you too. And he, he, I suppose, gives a, a kind of commercial sheen to the album, so it's very popular. It, of course, you've got you know this perennial Christmas classic in "Fairy Tale of New York" there, and I suppose it's 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 Shane understanding. Maybe what the general public wants, kind of giving it to them, but also staying true to himself as a songwriter who's cut from very different cloth to his contemporaries.
0: Tell us then about how Fairy Tale came about and how. You're looking back now going, oh, it was always a hit. It it, it just expanded over time. Did people realise at the time how, how big a deal this
1: was? I don't know that they that they did. It was never a UK number one, which I suppose here in Ireland, we always look to what was a chart Topper at Christmas there came close to it. Um, interestingly, its its origin seem to have been that a number of people, including Elvis Costello, had had suggested to Shane that bet you can't write a Christmas song. Bet you can't do that. And he's kind of thinking, well, I kind of bet I can. And even though when you look at the lyrics, I mean, it's just very tangentially associated with Christmas, really, you know, but it is such a masterpiece because it talks about the immigrant experience, particularly somebody who's down at heel. And he's had moments of being down at heel. And despite being born in Britain, I think the the, the very strong Irish sense always made him feel when he lived there as something of an immigrant in the country of his birth. Um, so, you know, you've, you've got Kirsty McCall, a very inspired choice uh, to duet with him. It's almost an anti-Christmas. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not.
0: Intended to bring him out. <laughs> Great sentiment. These there are there are two characters here that are that are at loggerheads.
1: To put it um, mildly, but again, Christmas can be a very fretful, stressful time. Arguments can happen and 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 often do. You know, in, in in latter years, when Shane's parents moved back to Tipperary, they moved to the Silver Mines from the UK, and he would always spend Christmas Day there, and the family that would strike up this song and legend has it that they would kind of come up with, they would lampoon the lyrics a little bit and put in their own choice words. We have to remember as well that fairy tale was something that delivered substantial royalties to Shane for many years. You know, at, at one point, at the turn of the millennium, it was suggested that the royalties amounted to about half a million euro a year. For this song, So it really was an important, an important number for him financially because the creativity had dried up and the releases weren't happening and he wasn't really going in the road and making money. So this was a meal ticket. Yeah, and speaking of, of arguments, we then had the
0: breakup of the Pogues. But after they threw you out, that must have made things a bit difficult. Yeah, he, he, I think they were hating my guts when it almost threw me out. I'd been screaming to get out of the bloody thing for a while. You know, it just run its course for the time being. It ended in Japan, didn't it?
1: I heard you, you fell out of a... I fell out of the train, yeah. <laughs> A very acrimonious split. I mean, and, and, and you know, Shane, I think, would, hold, would have held his hands up and said that he was responsible for it. I mean, he, in 1988, a, a tour, he failed to show up. Uh, there's another album that they bring out in 1990 and he doesn't want to do any promotional rounds for it. And then there are a series of gigs where even by his own standards, his behaviour is erratic on stage and the rest of the band just go, we can't do this, we have to make the awful decision to let him go and that's what they did. And you have a situation where the clashes, Joe Strummer uh, uh, steps in on lead vocals. What a cyclical thing that is, considering that, you know, in 1976 McGowan was there watching Joe Strummer perform and then Spider Stacy takes lead vocals and Shane steps away he's got his own group called The Popes there's a couple of albums to come out the last of them The Croc of Gold comes out in 1997 so there's a very long period that elapses with no new album from Shane McGowan in any incarnation At
0: that stage kind of throughout the 90s into the 2000s you're you're kind of looking at Shane McGowan and he, he cuts a very sad figure doesn't he? He really
1: does uh, he really does. I think the the alcohol just takes over. i I interviewed him it must be fifteen years ago for the first time, and you know I, it, it, it's it's memorable in that i I have never interviewed somebody that or, or been in the company of somebody that drank as much as he did. I mean it was a pint of Guinness and a double whiskey beside him and they were downed in minutes and then it was the next round and the next round and meanwhile I'm sipping politely uh, alongside and and yet curiously you know uh, he had been a bit cantankerous and a bit uh, uninspired about the interview at the start but the more he drank the more fluent he became and the more interesting he became and it was like there was that dependency there but I think it had it had crushed His ability to write new songs, it it probably crushed his confidence in terms of being on stage. And one of the great kind of questions is, was there a balance? You know, if, if he was, to use this awful term, a functioning alcoholic, would there have been more great music for him? Because as I said, the alcohol was fundamental to the music of the Pogues and to the very best songs he wrote. What do you say to people like who say that,
0: you know, you're killing yourself, you're drinking too much, you shouldn't drink? I'm no, not drinking too much. That's what you say to
1: them. Yeah. I'm not drinking enough. <laughs> but it did take over. And, and, and yes, uh, you know, it was... There was. A, I, I remember being at a, a Pope's gig in the Olympia um, many, many years ago, and like the band, they were about two hours late coming on stage, and the crowd had turned ugly by that point, and people were throwing points on stage, and it was just. It was kind of grim. It was a Saint Patrick's Day event, if memory serves, and uh, I don't think the music was up to much, but uh, th- th- there was a sense of what might have been even then.
0: There were still collaborations, though, with people. Sinead O'Connor. Uh in, in particular, you know, tried to to kind of take Shane
1: uh, under her arm. Uh, she did, and look, you know, the late Sinead had her own demons. I mean, I think she recognised in Shane something of a kindred spirit. Both of them extraordinarily talented, and and sometimes people that got in their own way themselves and. And, and I think he absolutely listened to her. And actually, I remember from that first interview, you know, he talked about her being somebody that he really respected. And believe me, in that interview, he threw out lots of other names of people in the industry that he did not respect at all.
0: He's operating on, on two engines when he has four. He's a genius when he's completely fucked up. Imagine how much more genius he would be if he wasn't, you know what I mean? So that's the main kind of feeling I'm left with or if somebody said to me, what what, what would you say? Is that is that, that um, I hope he doesn't um, smash himself entirely, you know what I mean? Because uh, it is a very incredible beauty that he does have. He did sustain a serious injury in recent years which inhibited his
1: movement. He was in studio in 2015 and had a bad fall, broke his pelvis. And that really changed the game because it meant that Aspirations to go back on stage couldn't really happen. I interviewed him again in 2022 in his home, himself and his wife, Victoria Mary Clark. They'd, they'd been together for years. They'd met in London and they'd married a couple of years before that. Johnny Depp was one of the main people at their wedding in Copenhagen. And I met them in their, uh, their, their flat in Ballsbridge, and they'd had to move home because they had to have a ground floor existence effectively and he was sitting in a hospital issue chair and you know he had to sleep in a hospital issue bed uh, which was beside him and it was just it was difficult to see him in this state he was barely drinking Victoria you know was I, I suppose effectively being his mouthpiece he was talking about a book of art an extraordinary book that he had published at the time, limited edition book. I mean, the initial copies were sold out, five thousand euro a piece, and it was a, a a collection of his art. Um, a, a lot of it, you know, to the untutored eye looked like scribbles or doodles. But you know, there a very significant UK art critic had given his imprimatur that this there was a real there was a special talent behind all of this. But you know, I came away from that interview feeling that, you know. He was in a really bad place.
0: Hi, friends. I'm sitting here suffering from set and from, from lights. The light is killing me, but I, I want that. Wish you
1: a happy new year and happy Christmas. And I felt great sorrow for Victoria, his wife, because this was a full-time job being his carer I mean there were nurses coming in all the time and uh, I mean at that stage he was 65 years old and you're thinking god there's so much life left but also a feeling that it had been 25 years before that when he last released an album like there had been a lot of period where we didn't have the greatness of Shane McGowan
0: there's a lot of celebrity admirers and friends though Who become part of this
1: kind of eclectic eccentric artistic lifestyle Oh very very much so I mean actually one of the things Shane said to me that day was he was kind of pointing up on the one of the many pictures on the wall and uh, that was uh, a gift from Bono Bono is an artist in his own right likes to draw and had done a Done a piece on on Shane himself. Um, I mentioned Johnny Depp. There has been a, an admirer for for many years. People like Russell Crowe. It's the gamut, effectively, and he's also hugely inspirational to other musicians, who who you know have constantly defended the Pogues as a band capable of brilliant virtuosic music, incredible lyricism, and not to be confused with the caricature of of drunk paddies or drunk you know anglo-irish paddies or whatever you know that actually there's incredible ability here and the songs are are so robust and beautifully honed
0: i truly believe that a hundred years from now that shane's music is going to be remembered in some it's just deep in the nature of it shane McGowan, gone from us now what's his legacy
1: I think he was one of the greatest lyricists that we've ever produced. He was a balladeer of the highest distinction. Along with the Pogues, he made two of the best albums we have in the Irish canon. And he fused rock and punk uh, with trad in a way that nobody has done as effectively. I think songs like A Rainy Night in Soho will live for as long as music is loved.
0: Morning, the police are watching And you know that I must go a store Hush, my morning, the police are watching, and you know know that that I must go go astor, in a day I'll be over the mountains. There'll be time enough left for to cry. So good night and God guard you forever. And write to me, won't you? Goodbye. So good night and God, God, God guard you, you forever. You forever. And write to me, watch you, goodbye. And my thanks to John Maher for joining me. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Gareth Mulhall and Dave Hanratty, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by Niall McMonagall archive clips from The Late Late Show, The Hunger Documentary, The Frank Skinner Show on ITV, The Pogues and The Irish Independent. If you enjoyed the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.